Hello and welcome back to One on One, New York's longest running sports call-in show. I'm Colin Lochran here with Tyler Yu, and we are pleased today to be joined by Matthew Blitner, hockey columnist for the New York Extra and established author of Unforgettable Rangers, Unforgettable Devils, and Unforgettable Islanders books, which are now being joined by his new work, Voices of the NHL. Matt, it's great to have you on today. How are you? I'm doing well, Dive. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, WFUV is always a pleasure to listen to and always a pleasure to be a part of. So can't wait for our discussion today. Yeah, Matt, I'm a huge hockey fan myself. And I have to ask, what was the inspiration for this new book of yours, The Voices of the NHL? And if I also might add, what goes into making a project of this magnitude? So I'll start with the first part of your question. And at the start of the pandemic, so March 2020, uh, as we all know, sports world was at a standstill, as was the rest of the world, with good reason. And I started doing a weekly Instagram sports talk show, which actually evolved into pretty much an every night instead of just a weekly. And what happens was a lot of the guests that I had were NHL broadcasters, whether they be play-by-play or color analysts, just from around the league. And, you know, I would get them talking about their careers and maybe a little bit about whatever team it was that they happened to do games for. So having already done three similar type books about broadcasters, writers, former players, scouts, and all that, I decided to do a book focused solely on the broadcasters and not to focus on the games like I did in the first three books, but to focus on the broadcasters themselves, how they got to where they are today. You guys happen to go to a school at Fordham where WFUV is known for churning out world-renowned broadcasters. And, you know, there are some broadcasters in the book who did go to Fordham uh, along with other schools as well. And it's something that goes to show not just for the fans of the broadcasters, but also for the young aspiring broadcasters, how to get there. It's not that there's just one ladder that you can go, okay, you're going to do this internship, you're going to do that, and then you get to the next step. It's everyone has their own different journeys to where they are today, and it can hopefully provide inspiration and knowledge for those who want to go that way as well. As for the second part of your question, what goes into the book, with a lot of interviews, I remember there were two days in particular early in the project where I interviewed 10 people one day and then 10 people the next day. And each interview ranged between 45 minutes and an hour. So it was literally just, okay, do this interview, maybe have three seconds to take a sip of water, do the next interview, and then rinse and repeat all the way through for 10 hours. And then of course the transcribing process and then putting the whole book together. It was my longest project uh, of my four books. It took just about a year to do. And there were 52 broadcasters involved and I was so happy to have each and every one of them. At least one from every one of the 31 NHL teams. Sorry, Seattle, you haven't played a game yet. As well as NHL Network, NBC, and Sportsnet. I really couldn't imagine doing all those interviews in one day, man. That's such a grind. And like, congratulations on the new book, by the way. And that's just like, that's all that puts into it. and. It's totally worth it. So thank you again for coming on today, Matt. Uh, My first question is, 
How did you get your start into the sports media industry? And was there somebody who inspired you in particular? Was this a lifelong goal? So it most certainly was not a lifelong goal. Uh, I wanted to be a lawyer growing up. I wanted to be a criminal prosecutor, to be precise. Loved watching Sam Waterston play Jack McCoy in the original Law and Order. Um, by the time I got into college, I was looking to go to law school. Uh, eventually, I decided against it. And I knew that I always had a lifelong passion for sports. Played baseball and softball growing up. Played uh, you know, picked up football with my friends plenty, uh, you know, tackle, no pads, you know, just right down out in the grass and dirt, uh, played some basketball, never really, never played any hockey, although I did coach it a little bit at the peewee level. Um, but what happens was I decided to go for my master's in sports management at Brooklyn College, uh, where I also happened to do my undergraduate in business administration. And while doing my master's program, I was informed by the head of the department that I had to do an internship. So I did a, one internship. The head of the department said, no, this is not acceptable as an internship, even though he had signed off on it previously. So long story short, I had to do a second internship. Through Brooklyn College's Career Center, I was able to apply. So I began my internship stay with the Hockey Maven. That was July 2015. Started off covering... Uh, the Islanders and occasional Rangers and occasional Devils for his weekly newsletter, The Fischler Report. And then eventually that grew into more and more responsibility, grew into covering the Rangers, started writing for MSG Networks, wrote for the Hockey News Magazine, uh, wrote for a couple of other publications, and then started writing some books right in time for the Rangers 25th anniversary of the 94 Cup. And then one book became two, became three, and now here we are at four. It's incredible. Matthew, you're, you're obviously someone who's been around the game of hockey quite a bit, working as a writer, as you said, for the New York Extra in researching for this book. I'm wondering, when you sat down to really think about these voices that have defined the sport that we, we all love, was there anything that really surprised you? Uh, in regards to surprise, I guess I was... I was expecting that there was going to be more variance in how and why people chose to become broadcasters. You know, uh, having known uh, people at WFUV, having had some friends that have gone to Syracuse, having known some people that have gone to Ithaca, and those are just some of the big three broadcast schools here in the Northeast. It, you know, I really didn't expect there to be as much of the well, when we were kids, we, want, we really liked not just the game, but the broadcasters. And we really, you know, we would, even playing street hockey, we would, you know, call the games where we were playing the game in the street with our friends. And then, you know, going into college and, of course, working at whatever their school station was, or if their school didn't have a radio station, going to a local station. And then eventually mirroring almost the path of players themselves of, you know, working your way through the minor leagues, ECHL, AHL. There were some IHL guys. Uh, for those of you who are old enough, the IHL is the old international hockey league. Used to be a minor league here in the United States. And just having watched people work their way up, the Islanders currently have a TV play-by-play -play guy by the name of Brendan Burke, who I'm sure you guys are well aware of. It took Brendan, and Brendan's not in this book. He's in my Islander book. 
but it took Brendan 10 years, roughly, of going through the minor leagues to get to where he is today. And a lot of people early on made it almost seem like that was a bit of an outlier, that it didn't take 10 years to get to where you are. No, that's really not. Maybe the outlier is that's 10 years and not 12 or 15. The outlier is most certainly not that it should take shorter. There's a lot of people who, you know, they started trying to become a broadcaster at 22, 23, and didn't get their break until they were 38, 40. So just think about that for a minute. And I guess so that would really be the surprises in there in regards to the 52 some odd broadcasters that are in this current vault. No, most definitely. That's like, it's a lifelong grind. And we're getting to the point where like, we're talking about where you currently are at, but I want to get back to where you started. What was your first moment that captivated you into becoming a hockey fan? Was it a certain player, a moment or anything else that drove you to becoming a passionate fan of hockey? So there's actually a very funny story to this. And I know that my parents will be watching this when this airs. So I'm sure they will get a kick out of it for the upteenth time. When I was three and a half years old, so this is March of 1997, my father took me to Madison Square Garden to see the Rangers play the Detroit Red Wings. Great seats. And by great seats, I do mean directly behind the Ranger bench. So there's a little walkway that separates the glass and the stands. And we're in the first two seats right there. Can't get a better seat. Impossible. So at some point in the game, a puck comes up over the boards and my father catches it. Now, you would think that he would hand the puck to his three and a half year old son sitting next to him. No, he handed the puck to some other little kid sitting next to us who was not there with us. Uh, Safe to say I was not a hockey fan. Didn't enjoy it. Went to a few games over the years, but was not a hockey fan. Uh, eventually fast forward to the fall of 2011. So the 2011-12 NHL season is underway. My father is a huge Ranger fan and he's going on and on about how the Rangers have arrived a year early. They're really, really going to be good this year. And there was a particular game coming up in December or January I was away at SUNY Albany as a freshman in college, by the way. And he had came up to visit me like he would plenty of times. And the Rangers were playing the Boston Bruins, who, of course, were the class of the league and were just coming off a Stanley Cup championship. So my father takes me out to eat at this restaurant and the Rangers are playing the Bruins on TV there. And he's going on about how if the Rangers can beat the Bruins in this game, it will really cement them as one of the class teams in the Eastern Conference. Well, the Rangers win the game. I could care less. And eventually the Rangers go on to make the playoffs that year. So I'm sitting eventually a few months later in my dorm room after having back-to-back finals, as I'm sure you guys are well aware of the nature of what back-to-back finals will do to a student and I'm sitting there in my dorm room exhausted no one's around none of my friends are around flipping through the channels on my tv nothing's on and finally I get to the very very last channel and the Rangers are in a playoff game uh, against the Washington Capitals I cannot name a single player on the team at this point 
Henrik Lundqvist is a goalie. That means absolutely nothing to me at this particular point in my life. And it's the third period. And so I decided to call up my dad and just, you know, jokingly be like, hey, you'll never guess what I'm doing. Give him a few guesses. Obviously, he didn't guess. And I tell him I'm watching the Ranger game. So we stay on the phone. Game goes into overtime. Overtime turns into double overtime. Double overtime turns into triple overtime. At which point, I'm already hooked. Marion Gabrick scores the game-winning goal in triple overtime. And from that point on, I was a hockey nut. I came back home for my freshman year a couple weeks later. And on my 19th birthday, I am, sorry, not my 19th birthday. On, yes, on my 19th birthday, on May 25th, 2012, the Rangers are playing the Devils in game six of the Eastern Conference Final. Now, when the Rangers-Devils series was set, I went out and bought the book Battle on the Hudson. Because when I get involved in a sport, I get involved in a sport. I want to know everything possible about the history. You name it, I want to know it. So Battle of the Hudson details that famous 1994 Eastern Conference final between the Rangers and Devils. And it was not hard to see the similarities between the 94 teams and the 2012 teams. So going into game six, the Rangers are down 3-2 in the series, just like they were in 94. Now, we all know in 1994, Mark Messier, prior to Game 6, says, we will win Game 6. Now, while that was a little bit exaggerated by the New York Post, the meaning was nonetheless, we will win the game. And that happened to me my first birthday, May 25th, 1994. I turned one year old the night Messier had his hat trick against the Devils. Fast forward now, I'm turning 19 years old. Rangers are down 3-2. I'm expecting Ryan Callahan to go out and do something similar to Messier. Not necessarily a hat trick, but expecting him to do something. Rangers go down 2-0, I believe it was, early in the game. Come back to tie it 2-2. I think Callahan had an assist in the game, if I'm not mistaken. Game goes into overtime. Again, hard not to see the similarities. Again, 94, there was no overtime in game six, but you, you can see where it is in this. I'm supposed to be going out for my 19th birthday with a group of my friends, but we need to wait for the game to end. Well, we all know what happens. Devils get the puck in the zone. Adam Henry scores. Doc Emmerich shouts, it's over. And, well, so was the night. My friends and I had no desire to go out at that point. Uh, my parents convinced us to go out. But that was my first experience in the heartbreak of hockey. And from then on, I was just a real big hot. I watched every Ranger game, would go to the garden with my father several times a year. And eventually, when I became a reporter, look, you're going to the games, whether it be the garden, Prudential Center, Barclays, Nassau Coliseum, other arenas around the entire league, going for free and covering the game, going into the locker room. Obviously, doing it as a professional, you're not there with a rooting interest. But that's how I got to where I am. Hearing names like Gabrick and Callahan and Lundquist certainly making me have flashbacks to those Rangers days not too long ago. But I want to bring matters into the present a little bit. The Rangers have quite the intriguing roster right now. The guys like Artemi Panarin, Mika Zavanajed, Alexi Lafreniere, just a few of these people who will be representing the Broadway Blue Shirts this season. 
And, you know, after the brief playoff appearance in the bubble and a complete miss last season, I'm wondering, what are you expecting from the Rangers this season? So I hope James Dolan does not uh, tune into this. Uh, as much as it would probably be pretty cool for you guys, there is, I do not believe the Rangers are going to be a playoff team this year. He is, he's laid out the mandate that the Rangers need to be the playoffs, be in the playoffs. He said that he felt that they should have made the playoffs last year, which is an absolute mistake. They're, the only way the Rangers were making the playoffs last year is if they were an absolute Cinderella team. Obviously, they were not. I Could they be in contention for a playoff spot? I fully expect them to be. I do not expect them to be top three in the division. I expect them to finish, you know, right around fourth or fifth in the Metropolitan Division, which, depending on what goes on in the Atlantic Division, maybe the four in the Metro can be a wild hard spot. We'll see. I think that they will be in the thick of the race until the last, you know, week or two of the season. Uh, They'll probably end up missing by just a couple of points, you know, maybe missed by two or three points. Uh, They obviously have a lot of great young talent. Alexis Lafreniere, Tapo Tato. I'm interested to see what Vitaly Kratzoff does. I think Philip Heal can take a step forward. You have the reigning Norris Trophy winner and Adam Fox. Uh, Of course, Niels Lundqvist should make the team after all the hype that he's had since being drafted. I think Zach Jones, as much as it looks like he won't make the team out of camp, will actually play a big part of what goes on. The Rangers have a lot of interesting pieces. But just like last year under David Quinn, where Quinn could not get his top guys in Zibanejad and Panarin and Strom to play in North-South game, I don't see Gerard Gallant getting these same players to play that North-South game. Yes, the Rangers have a lot more grit in like the Barclay Goudreau and Ryan Reeves, and we'll see if Morgan Barron makes the team. And of course, on defense with Patrick Nemeth and Jared Tenorti, the Rangers should be tougher to play against. They should play more of a straight line North-South game. I don't see that translating to the same guys who refused for the most part, to play North-South hockey last year. Ryan Strome went as far as to say last year that he didn't see them as being a North-South team, that he thought East-West was the way that their skill set meshed. So we'll see if Gallant is more successful than Quinn in that regard. Uh, If Gallant can be successful in that, then the size the limit, and they absolutely can make the playoffs. But if Gallant cannot get the top guns to change their ways, then they will miss. Indeed. It's a new era in New York Rangers history right now with the new head coach and Gerard Gallant. Then the turning of the pages with Henrik Lundqvist leaving. And now we've got a new goalie in Igor Shesterkin. Speaking of Shesterkin, do you think that you see him as a star in front of the net? Or do you think that Alexander Georgiev should be given more of an opportunity in front of the net for the Rangers? So, this is meant as no disrespect to Georgiev, who has been an absolute pleasure to interview, especially to me, the amount of one-on-one interviews I've done with him. Uh, when I was at MSG Networks during his rook, when he was first called up, did a full-length feature on him. He really bared his soul in it. Uh, I, you know, he always would give me a fist bump or a handshake after a game or a practice. Just an absolute, absolute terrific human being. 
and a very good goaltender. That being said, Igor Shesterkin has something that Alexander Georgiev does not. And there's no way to really specify that uh, unless you are a goaltender in hockey. But you can just see in the way Shesterkin moves that he has that refined type of movement that he is going to be, and rightfully so, the number one goaltender for the New York Rangers. Not to say it can't be something like a 1A, 1B situation. Uh, We all know that in today's NHL, number one goalies are not playing 65, 70 games anymore. Uh, Teams routinely talk about how they want their number one to play uh, in the neighborhood of 55 games, which leaves close to 30 games for the backup. So, you know, 30 games is nothing to sneeze at. If a backup's only playing 10 games and they go five and five, it's probably not going to sink your season. But backup, if they're playing, you know, 28 games, that's significant for your season. So, again, Shesterkin, he's rightfully the number one. I'm curious to see if he can hold up. Uh, in Russia, he never really played. I believe it was more than four straight games in a row. Uh, he always had a lot of lower body injuries. We've seen him have some lower body injuries here. If he can overcome that, if he can shoulder the workload, then there's no reason he cannot be one of the elite goaltenders in the National Hockey League. I'm curious, though, Not he's not 21. He's in his mid-20s at this point. If he can all of a sudden become that workhorse. If he can, terrific. He'll be in the Vesna conversation. If he can't, then it's going to fall on DRDF to sort of do what the Rangers had in the early 70s between Gilles Vilmier and Eddie Jockman when they split the Vesna. So only time will tell in that regard. Rangers certainly hoping that Shesterkin can be that guy going forward for them. I do want to switch to New York's other hockey team for a brief moment here. Last year, the Isles were banished in the playoffs by those mighty Tampa Bay Lightning. Given how packed the East is this year in terms of talent, what are you expecting from the Islanders with guys like Brazil, Beauvillier, and Bailey still in the fold? So the Islanders, two consecutive years, have gone to the third round of the playoffs. Obviously, one time it was called the conference final, another time the semifinal. Uh, that's just semantics. They've been to the third round each of the last two years before losing to Tampa. Um, one was in game six in overtime, and the other was game seven. The Islanders, if Andres Lee had been healthy, at the end of last year in the playoffs, which obviously he was not having torn his ACL. I know there was some speculation that he would be back in time for the Stanley Cup final. Uh, I've actually spoken with uh, his agent, Neil Sheehy, uh, a few times over the offseason, and he said that there was legitimate consideration to activating Lee if the Islanders had made it to the Stanley Cup final. Not quite sure that that actually would have happened, but, you know, that's between... Lee, Sheehy, Trotz, and Lamarillo to have made that determination. But if he would have been healthy, I think it might be okay to say that the Islanders would have gotten past Tampa. Whether they would have won the Stanley Cup or not, whole other story. But I think in a series that was basically determined by one game and one goal, uh, I think Lee would have made the difference. That being said, I fully expect the Islanders to go back to the Eastern Conference Final this year. Uh, the only questions really are, you know, a full year of Kyle Palmieri, who's he going to play with? 
Uh, it looks like he's probably going to be on the third line with uh, J.G. Pajot and Zach Parisi. Well, Oliver Wallstrom looks like he's at least targeted to begin the year. We'll see how that goes. He hasn't had the best of camps. Well, Wallstrom looks like he's going to play with Barzell and Lee on the top line. The Islanders should be fairly well, should still be right there. Uh, on defense, we'll see if the second pair is a Dan O'Chara and Noah Dobson. I wonder if Dobson can handle the jump up to second pair minutes after being sheltered the past year and a half, and whether Chara can still be a reliable second pair guy. He is 44. He will be 45. And, of course, then what happens with Scott Mayfield? Mayfield was one of the best Islander blue liners last year. I know Islander fans, they, they're not in love with Mayfield, but they should be. And whether he'll be playing with green or whatever combination Trotz comes up with, it, the Islanders should be right there. I know Volomov has been uh, hampered by an injury here in the preseason, but they have Ilya Sorokin, who, like Chesterkin, should be a Vesna candidate in the years to come. So the Islanders are pretty much set. I think they can be this year what Tampa was two years ago. Tampa, two years ago, finally got past Columbus in that five-overtime game after having been embarrassingly swept the year prior. I think the Islanders can get past Tampa this year in the Eastern Conference Final and then go all the way. Uh, I don't want to jinx them, but I think this can be their year. Oh, that's very bold of you to say. But, the, I mean, the, the Tampa Bay Lightning are very good, but... The future is extremely bright in uh, in Long Island. I mean, the Islanders looked like a great team last year in the playoffs. They beat quality opponents in the Penguins and the Bruins, and they were just a goal away from really giving it to the Lightning. But, I mean, last year was kind of, if you might say, an end of an era in Long Island. With the Nassau Coliseum in its final year last year, I mean, you saw how packed it was all of the playoffs. How emotional were the Stanley Cup playoffs for Islanders fans? And did you get to go to any Islanders games during last year's playoff run? So I was covering the team for New York Extra. In fact, we did a, uh, I believe it was prior to game six against Boston, if I'm not mistaken, uh, where my editor and I, we went into the Nassau parking lot and did a feature, a multimedia feature on the fans tailgating in the parking lot. As we all know, the Nassau Coliseum uh, pre-game tailgate or stuff of legends during playoff games. Fans were getting there at 10 a.m. for a 7 o'clock start. Uh, you don't even see that type of dedication in football. And I'm, I'm convinced football invented the concept of tailgating. So the Islanders and their fans absolutely had a heck of a run last year. I got a chance to tour UBS Arena a couple months ago. The Islanders should be able to have that atmosphere that was present in Nassau Coliseum and transfer that over to UBS. Now, we'll have to wait until the end of November to actually christen UBS Arena. But once they start playing there, and especially with the home-heavy schedule in the later portion of the season, it could very well be the type of home ice advantage that will give the Islanders that extra oomph to get over the hump. That UBS arena looks and sounds 
Like, it is going to be what Nassau Coliseum was in the Islanders' heyday in the 70s and 80s. So if that is the case, it will be, you know, fans will always be nostalgic for Nassau Coliseum, but they're going to have a new home that they're going to want to christen with a lot of wins and a lot of noise very quickly. Once again, you're listening to One on One, New York's longest-running sports call-in show. I'm Colin Lochran, alongside Tyler Yu. Matthew Blitner, thank you for joining us today. Be sure to check out Matthew's new book, Voices of the NHL. Once again, we thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thank you guys so much. It's always a pleasure coming on to speak to WFUV students. And, you know, you guys are the future of the broadcast world and the future of the media industry, really, because you guys can become writers, not just broadcasters. And look forward to doing this many, many more times in the years to come.